This is the Israel Connection, coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing to you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. First up today, I'm speaking with Professor Edward Lutbach, whose latest book is The Art of Military Innovation, Lessons from the Israel Defense Forces. In this program, we deal with the issue of Iran and what may follow the drone attack in Jordan that killed three American servicemen and wounded dozens, to which President Joe Biden is promising to retaliate. And we hear how Israel is definitely winning the political war that has been going on since the establishment of the state. I have with me Professor Edward Lutbach, who is a strategist and historian known for his works on grand strategy, geoeconomics, military history and international relations. Welcome to the Israel Connection, Edward. Thank you. Now, Edward, you've written an article titled Israel is definitely winning the political war, and that's what caught my eye. And there you say that in spite of all the anti-Israel demonstrations around the world, and the huge pressure being brought to bear on Israel to carry out a ceasefire, Israel is definitely winning the political war. The real one waged not in the streets, but in the foreign ministries of adversaries, neutrals and allies. Could you explain, please, what has led you to this view? This is one of the 10 different subjects on which it's a real advantage not to watch imagery, television and all this stuff. In 1967, I was a volunteer in Israel. It's a little-known fact, but the victory was due to my fighting and so on, and I still have the helmet of a Syrian soldier I killed. At that moment, Israel was completely isolated. The only country that had been supplying weapons, France, uh, President de Gaulle declared there'd be no more supplies because they started the war and so on. He decided to switch sides and sell the Mirage fighters to the Arabs. So Israel had zero allies, certainly not the United States. Remember, the United States refused to sell weapons to Israel from the day of its establishment in May 15, 1948, until 11 years after the Russians were shipping hundreds of jet fighters and three or 4,000 tanks. They were willing to sell 200 tanks to Israel. None of them had been delivered. The A-4 Skyhawk, the, the smallest, cheapest, least subsonic, uh, tiny aircraft, that's what they're willing to sell, and so None of it had been delivered in 1967. There was not a single American weapon in Israel. So Israel did not have the United States and certainly didn't have in Europe. In fact, a consignment of gas masks, because the Egyptians had been using phosgene and mustard in Yemen as late as January 1967, Israelis bought gas masks and they went through Rome Airport. They were blocked by the Italian government, by a foreign minister, Andreotti, and nobody said a word. The, the Europeans would not supply anything to Israel, not even gas masks, to fight Egyptians who had just used mustard, gas, and phosgene. That was the situation of Israel in 1967. Yeah. In 1973, and the war caught me by surprise, so I only got there later, but I did get to cross the Suez Canal, like all good boys and some. And at that moment, Israel had an ally, the United States, one ally, United States. That ally was a conditional ally. It took President Nixon and Kissinger and some 
took several days to agree to an airlift of much-needed supplies. There is a sub-story that the supplies were not actually needed. It's only that in a mass mobilization, the Sinai was full of trucks carrying tank ammunition, but the units at the front didn't get it. In those days, there weren't computer controls, etc. Never mind. So when the United States belatedly agreed to, a, to an airlift, which was then delivered very energetically, very energetically, the whole, uh, because James R. Schlesinger, Secretary of Defense, had told the airlift people to prepare for the airlift long before Nixon authorized it. So the moment Nixon said, yes, boom, airplanes took off and very well loaded. Great thing it was, except no European country would allow U.S. aircraft to overfly their airspace. And then finally, they persuaded Portugal, the weakest, smallest, in middle of a, you know, a disaster situation, the Portuguese allowed the Americans to use Azores for um, refueling stop. That is the big U.S. base in the Azores. They allowed, gave permission to use it. But once they refueled in the Azores, they had to reach Israel by flying over the very narrow corridor between Morocco and Gibraltar. And because no European country would allow them, not, not the British, the British at that point were focused on selling jewelry and whatever else they could to the oil nabobs. Yes. And the British said no, and everybody said no. So much so that U.S. supplies that were already in Europe, because in those days, there was still the Cold War, there were a lot of U.S. supplies, not in the United States, but in Europe. In order to be flown to Israel, they had to be flown backwards to the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic, and from the Azores back to Israel, the Europeans would not allow the supplies to be delivered from Europe to Israel. That was the situation in 67, total isolation. 1973, only the United States and nobody else. Today, what is the situation? Well, uh, the Russians talk against Israel at the UN, but when the Israeli Air Force operates in Syria, it does so in conjunction with the Russian Air Force, and so that the last strike in Damascus were several Iranian Revolutionary Guard colonels and junior generals went to their maker. That airstrike was coordinated with the Russian Air Force base in Latakia. The Chinese also come out against Israel, and uh, I've noticed that of the 22 joint ventures, that they have with Israel, none has been diminished, one has been considerably boosted, although unrelated to the war. In other words, the Chinese talk for the Arabs at the UN, when they want to do business, they do it with Israel. Okay, and, and they would love to be able to do strategic business, the military business, but they'll settle for milk and dairy products and so on, and things of that sort. So, as for Europe, well, I was at the NATO meeting in Naples, coincidentally, unrelated to any of this, but there was a logistics session there, and I saw them taking packages of munitions from the different countries, with the exception of Spain, which fortunately, and Ireland. Ireland only makes tin whistles uh, and so on, so no Irish tin whistles, and the Spanish don't actually have anything in the flow. Everybody else, they were sitting around the table and saying, well, this one we will send to Ukraine, and this will send to Israel because the Israelis requested this. Now, Israel, of course, in, in this war, in the year 2024, Israel is not a needy military country. It's a country that makes its own pistols, its own everything it does. They still need things like the airframes of jet fighters, although they do a lot of the other stuff. 
So Israel needs much less, and Israel gets much more, and the Russians and the Chinese are actually in Israel's quarter when it comes to practical stuff, even if at the UN they want to sing songs, you know, uh, for the Arabs. And in regard to Europe, with the exception of Ireland, Spain, and Iceland, Iceland of all places, which is very hostile, Ireland and Iceland are the most hostile. Uh, these large, powerful empires are against Israel, but Germany is on Israel's camp. In fact, the German chancellor flew to Israel at the beginning of the war. German support for Israel has not diminished by one milligram, by nothing. And the French also have, were so politically supportive, and Israel is buying almost no military items from France at all, but if they they did, the French would supply them, and that goes for every other country. The Netherlands, of course, Belgium, which is still a, a weapons producer, although I'm not sure what exactly. So, in other words, 67 total isolation, 1973 only in the United States. Today, United States, Europe, and another country, a very small Asian country, very tiny country, India, which full out support, public opinion, government, diplomacy, and so on support. And by the way, the Indian frigate in the Red Sea is the one that actually is very active now. And so there's this, India is an emerging uh, superpower. It is a nuclear power. It is definitely not a small power. It can't be described as a medium power. So great power. And Israel has it in is on its side, on its very much on its side. From a diplomatic point of view, Israel's position from that is from a real point of view, a real life point of view, things that matter. Israel's position has greatly increased. But from the point of view of of idiots demonstrating in the streets, you know, ignorant students and some, you know, you all heard, I'm sure now that when. The river to the sea chanters, the chanters, river to sea, are asked to name the river and the sea, name rivers like the Nile and the Black Sea, <laughs> you know, things like that. For those characters who are Muslim, Arabs, fanatics, plus idiots and uh, ignoramuses, people who don't know a thing, they are demonstrating in the streets. But they don't make a difference in this world in which we live. The people who do make a difference have switched from a complete refusal to engage with Israel, 67, to active hostility in 73, because then they wanted to earn brownie points with the oil shakes, because that's when the oil price exploded. And suddenly the Arabs were in London buying jewelry on Bond Street and buying uh, British jet fighters that nobody wanted, and certainly not the RF, and they were buying them. So that's it. Revolution. I, I wanted to say, you haven't even mentioned... Uh... The Abraham Accords in the Arab world uh, in what... Oh, yes, yes. I should simply say that none of the countries that have established relations with Israel have either stopped them or indicated any desire to do so, whereas the Saudi foreign minister, who is a serious guy, made a speech saying that we await the end of the war and some kind of thing for Palestine to continue with... Uh, they're determined to establish relations with Israel, and everybody knows that I was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, several months ago. And I don't actually know what was going on in terms of negotiations between the parties. But I stayed in three hotels. In all three hotels, I heard Hebrew. 
in the elevators, the corridors, the cafeterias, and so on. And they're all, they didn't look like tourists. They didn't go there to take the waters. And they were all, in other words, the Saudis didn't, are not awaiting the formal diplomatic relations to develop connections. And there is there a possibility of a fusion between Israeli high tech or Israeli tech, let's call it that, because of things like water and so on, and Saudi funds. Not the miserly, the miserable uh, 10, 12 billions that you get from Intel and Kiryat Gat or whatever, but rather we're talking big money, the real money. You know. uh, well, just one of the Saudi funds is $100 billion. One other country uh, you haven't mentioned, which uh, I'm sure you're going to say is not very significant in the, in the whole uh, picture, and that's Australia. Australia, compared to where it was 50, 60 years ago, is now having more antipathy towards Israel than ever. You mean in the streets? No, in the government. Is the government is hostile? Well, the government so, is not as friendly towards Israel as, as it was uh, when we saw... Uh, yeah, so you're now measuring the Australian governments by the exalted standards of today. But they, of course, they have diplomatic relations with Israel. They did make some supporting statements after October 7. Australia and Canada, both were countries that had zero impact on Israel. They never did anything of any use to Israel. But then Canada, and both Canada and Australia had their seasons of being strongly pro-Israeli. And then there's a reaction and so on. Let's say it would be very unpleasant also for Australian Jews if the Australian government were hostile to Israel. The fact that they're not substantially supportive or not sufficiently supportive, that's an, it's an irritation, it's an annoyance, but it's not consequential. Yes, well, it affects us in our Jewish community here in Australia. That's uh, why I am, uh, am somewhat concerned about it. But I want to shift the focus uh, because we've now seen uh, a major attack on American forces in Jordan only, uh, only yesterday. This brings the political war uh, that's going on with Iran into the picture. Now, how yes. much of, um, of a setback has it been for Israel that the Biden administration, when it came to office, sought to return the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, back into action and uh, thought they could uh, drag Iran back into compliance so the sanctions could be lifted and we'd get into happy land. Now, this, of course, is not where we are. There are now words coming out to suggest that uh, America may even be uh, looking at attacking targets within Iran itself because of what had just happened. The Biden administration, as you know, President Biden, reacted to October 7 more or less the same way as uh, an Israeli. He might as well have been an Israeli leader because he came out full out in a useful way full support in a useful way by actually and sent a carrier, an aircraft carrier, happens to be the largest, offshore in order to tell Hezbollah, don't join. You think you're joining? Don't. Because that aircraft carrier, it has the equivalent of three squadrons to Israel's 15 squadrons. So it's not a decisive thing, of course, but it's useful. But what was really useful was the Biden made it very clear Say, you launch rockets, we bomb you. 
And remember, an aircraft carrier doesn't have to, the airplanes don't travel far to hit the targets. They're just off, off the coast. So their, their bombing capacity is multiplied. Because, you know, these usually bombing, you fly for, could fly 200 miles more nautical miles before you bomb. There you fly 25 miles. It was significant militarily. It was significantly politically and symbolically. And it was a big message in Europe which was picked up immediately by Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Union, who is quite an authoritative figure. She immediately flew to Israel. That started the chain reaction of other people flying to Israel and so on. So that was all great. Now, when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Iran, which is, of course, uh, heavily funded Hamas, uh, there were principal funders and everything else, and naturally Hezbollah and so on, comes to Iran, the Biden administration has been entrapped in Obama's law. There is the Obama law. The Obama law is that Iran can attack anybody, but nobody can attack Iran. That's the Obama law. Okay? They were entrapped in it. And in fact, they had a guy called Robert Malley at the White House, the son of two fanatically anti-Israeli uh, Stalinist Jews, one New York, one uh, Egypt, this Mali was the Ayatollah man in the White House, and he connected with a group of Ayatollah groupies in Washington who are in think tanks and so on, which are funded by dubious sources, of course, and they enforced Obama's law. And why did they do that? Because Obama himself enforced Mali on Biden. When Obama, so Obama's support is very important for Biden, of course, and he Enforced to you have to have Susan Rice, who was the National Security Advisor, the most disastrous in human history, going back to prehistoric times. Susan Rice, but Biden put her in a in a thing called the Domestic Policy Council, which is more or less the same as putting her, locking her in the bathroom of the basement of the White House. Mali, on the other hand, Obama was so watchful on Bali being important because his greatest achievement, Obama's, was to the joint a plan of action with Iran, you know, the nuclear agreement with Iran. And Mali's job was to revive it, which he certainly tried to do very hard. Mm -hmm. Only recently he tripped up on a security clearance because of his conviviality with the Ayatollah groupies here who are sheltered in the Trita Parsi is the best known of them. And so on. But anyway, the Obama law is was still in effect as of last night because the president had said after the attack on the U.S. base in Iraq, which followed attacks on the U.S. base, these are very small bases, but they are bases in Syria, President Biden has said, this will not go unanswered and so on support, but then he would only authorize limited military action against these Iran-supported militias in Iraq and Syria, and of course against the Houthis, only in regard to attacking their uh, buildings that they thought they kept the missiles that they were launching at ships. That was it, okay? But the Obama law still applied. The Iranians could attack everybody, but nobody attacks Iran. And he said, well, we have made our position clear, Biden said, and uh, we are we're deterred there in, you know, in plan. What happens is that instead of being deterred, they were encouraged, and the result was three American dead now. The administration has not 
swallowed this. The administration has not got past the point of the three American dead and 40 wounded in a big, big explosion on this very tiny base in Jordan. Now they are in the throes of decision. Biden knows that if there is no attack on Iran itself, some proper, you know, suitable target like Revolutionary Guard headquarters or one of the Revolutionary Guard uh, things in Tehran, preferably, but not somewhere in the desert. If there's no such thing, what will happen is there'll be more attacks on U.S. Evidently, he said, we deter, we are deterring them. Answer, they are not deterred. That's clear because they launched this attack. Not only it was an attack in Jordan where there were no previous attacks and an attack that was meant to kill and succeeded to kill uh, significantly. So Biden now is faced with the, with the fact that he must finally break Obama's law and attack a target in Iran. If it doesn't do that, There'll be, I believe that the response will be more attacks. I don't think the response will be clever, like no attacks. It'd be stupid, more attacks. Now, there's something else going on, and this is brand new stuff. Today, I received um, information that Iran and analysts, I don't know who they are, said that actually the Iranians don't really control these people. They make their own decisions. And in regard to the Houthis specifically, that the leader of the Houthis, whose name is so-and-so, so-and-so al-Houthi, that he holds himself higher than the, he thinks is superior to the Revolutionary Guard people. He doesn't follow their orders at all. So when the Houthis launch a missile against a warship, it doesn't mean Iran is launching a warship. The Iranians, poor boys, don't control them. Whoever circulated, and this could only come from the Ayatollah groupies in Washington, who, as I say, have a think tank, you know, structured to do this sort of thing, or from CIA analysts. Because I follow CIA analysts very, very carefully. I myself, I'm a government contractor and researcher. And I follow them carefully because the track record is perfect. They're never, they're always wrong. So if you follow their analysis, you get significant pointers. But in this case, their wrongness should induce an investigation because their wrongness is not just stupidity and ignorance. By the way, there are only two people who know Farsi in the CIA. Two, two. Okay, this is after half a century of engagement with Iran. Two. Because I, I guess it's difficult to learn. The rumor that they are not responsible, they didn't say we're not responsible for the attack on Jordan, which was launched from Iraq, not by the Houthis, okay? Yes. But they circulated the story that, that the Houthi guy doesn't listen to them. Now, the, of course, the weapons they launch are Iranian. So if they decide to act on their own without Iran, they'll be able to launch, um, the you know, not missiles, but what Yemen produces, bows and arrows, I presume. They'll try and attack ships with bows and arrows because that's what the Yemenis used to produce, kind of old-fashioned muskets, but I think they stopped. Maybe 18th century muskets, that's what they can. Everything else depends on Iranian supplies. Therefore, the idea that they're independent, which was circulated by this analysis of the spoil, is complete fantasy. There's no independence whatsoever. They're agents of Iran in great detail. 
Can I just say that uh, if America does uh, attack a target within Iran, do you really think that Iran will 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 stop uh, its uh, its attacks uh, on uh, Americans or uh, or its allies? There is a particular situation in Iran. Runaway inflation in Iran has, for the first time, brought hunger to the middle class in Tehran. There are people who are better off than them. There might be, let's say, farmers in Azeri province of Iran, the Azer, Iranian Azerbaijan, to be better off. But the bulk of the Tehran population, who you define as middle class, are feeling hunger for the first time because of inflation. They are all salaried, and inflation has been very great. I mean, like 40, 50% or something. So there's hunger there. Hatred for the regime, I believe that 20% or less support the regime. The others oppose the regime. And I think more than 50% hate them. Given the chance, they would tear them apart with their bare hands. If given a chance, they would tie all these ayatollahs behind the jeep and drive them from Tehran, that kind of stuff. Hatred, real hatred. That hatred, by the way, has caused mass defection from the official 12 Shia religion. The mosques are empty. There have been opinion polls run by various European agencies. People say, well, I used to be a Shia Muslim. I'm not anymore. And in Tehran, where the polls were conducted, it's about 50%. So the regime, if you attack such a regime while rigorously avoiding innocent casualties by attacking a well-distinguished, well-isolated Revolutionary Guard headquarters or Basij, Basij are these um, these unwashed uh, unwashed uh, militants who come out to beat up demonstrators and so on. They're paid uh, a monthly kind of dole, a very small amount every you know, month and so on. If you attack a highly separated Basij facility, or much better, a Revolutionary Guards facility, where there are no civilians, and, ta -ta, and you talk them out, you'll get applause in Tehran. And I would not be surprised if the applause is manifest. That is, that people will take to the roofs or something like that. You know, some device, such a thing. They hate them. They really hate them. As you know, the Mossad has been operating in Tehran with impunity. And uh, one of the reasons that they operate in this way, because, you know, they don't do the uh, James Bond uh, nonsense or whatever, what the CIA peddles to Hollywood. They just go, they live there, they shop, they cook, they eat and so on. I have an, a source who actually was there and doing those things. And he told me, look, I had the very strong feeling that if somebody detected the fact that there was an Israeli person working for Mossad, there was a very good probability that he would not report me if he was by himself. If it wasn't like a group situation where he'd be terrified that somebody else would report me, I had a strong feeling that he would not report me. It's one of the reasons I rela relaxed no? in Tehran. Although they did complain that even if you're really careful, very, very careful, after a while you put on weight because apparently Iranian food is very deceptive. They put a lot of butter, they hide butter in the food and so on. And I said, any other problems? They said, no. CIA has not a single officer in Iran. Too dangerous, they say. I've been speaking with Professor Edward Lutzbach, whose latest book is The Art of Military Innovation, 
lessons from the Israel Defence Forces. What you heard is an abbreviated version of the full interview with Professor Lutvak. Go to my podcast page at Omni Studio and on the JAIR website to listen to the full interview with Professor Lutvak in which we discuss his book and hear about some of the innovative strategies that have moulded the IDF into a force to be reckoned with. Following allegations of UNRWA's employees participating in the October 7th massacre, many countries have decided to freeze the organisation's funds. How could this impact UNRWA's activity and legitimacy? What should Israel do in light of these disconcerting findings? Dr. Adi Schwartz is a specialist in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and spoke at a media briefing. He is a research fellow at the Ben-Gurion Research Institute for the Study of Israel and Zionism and the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. He co-authored with Dr. Einat Wilf, The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace. Since we're uh, dealing here with something in the news cycle, I imagine that most of you are uh, quite up to date with what's going on. Uh, the latest news I've seen is that Sweden joined uh, the long list of countries which uh, have decided to temporarily uh, seize funding for UNRWA. A few remarks, and then we'll open it uh, to your questions. Um, I think this step of uh, stopping uh, the financing of UNRWA was long overdue. should have happened many years ago. A step in the right direction, if I was asked, what should Israel do and what should the international community do? I would certainly say that this temporary step should be made permanent. UNRWA should be dismantled. I think that UNRWA is perhaps, if not the most, but certainly one of the worst organizations that had the worst impact on the unfolding of the Arab-Israeli and specifically Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It has made the Palestinian refugee problem perpetuated. The Palestinian refugee problem, instead of solving it, instead of resettling refugees, and to make things a bit clear, to remind you that when UNRWA was created uh, at the wake of the uh, 1948 war, it was supposed to resettle the refugees. That was the idea. It was a, an agency for the resettlement of refugees. Originally, it was a temporary agency for 18 months. So it should have stopped operations, seized operations in 1951. We're now in 2024. And not only that the Palestinian refugee problem was not solved, not even one refugee was even resettled. If you compare this uh, refugeehood, this refugee situation, to other refugee cases uh, from that period, namely India, Pakistan, or what happened in Europe, uh, Germans, millions of Germans and Ukrainians and Polacks and Czechs, etc., who had to flee and became refugees, none of them are refugees today. What we are seeing is not an agency which works for humanitarian issues, but an agency which is serving a political purpose, which is to undo the state of Israel. The main tool that this is being made possible is A, the definition of refugee. UNRWA has a definition of refugee 
which inflates the number of the Palestinian refugees at least more than 20 times. The real number, if we had applied international standards to the case of the Palestinian refugees, there would be perhaps 200,000 refugees. Let me just make it clear. Out of 2.2 million population, the entire population of the Gaza Strip is 2.2. Out of them, some 1.5 million are considered refugees. That's something like 75%. Now, let us think about it for a while. The main criteria all over the world for a refugee to be called a refugee is that he is outside of his country, right? There's no sense of telling someone or designating someone as a refugee if he's not out of his country. Now, regarding Palestinians who currently live in Gaza or in Khan Yunus or in Dil al-Balakh, and for that matter, they have lived there for the last 75 years at least, they are Palestinian. They live in Palestinian cities. They certainly consider the Gaza Strip to be Palestinian and part of Palestine. So at the same time, they live in Palestine, right? They live in Gaza. And they consider themselves and the international community consider them to be refugees from Palestine. Now, this is unprecedented. This is the only place on earth where a man or a woman can be both living in Palestine and being a refugee from Palestine. That's a contradictory. That's, a, that's impossible anywhere else. Think that someone is living in Serbia and at the same time he's refugee from Serbia. No, that can't happen. So, and this is not something individual. 1.5 million people are being taught that their real home is not in Gaza, not in Dir al-Balakh, not in Khan Yunus, but in the state of Israel. Now, one surely asks himself, how can it be? What is so unique about the Palestinian refugees, which they have to have their own definition? They are the only people on earth who can reside in Palestine and still be refugees from Palestine. Now, what's the explanation? There is none except for a political one. The political aspect of the Palestinian refugee problem is to inflate the number of refugees. Instead of 200,000, I can explain how I reached that number, there are currently, according to UNRWA, almost 6 million refugees. Now, you understand given demographics and given the population, both of Israel and of the Palestinians, that such a number, 6 million refugees, and their demand to return, what they call to return, into the territory of Israel, makes the Palestinian-Israeli conflict unsolvable. So what we see here is a United Nations agency, right? An agency which was supposedly created to resettle refugees, to further the cause of peace on earth and certainly in the Middle East, which is doing exactly the opposite, is designating purposefully a huge number of people without any explanation, without any reason, as refugees, thus making the conflict unsolvable. So this is UNRWA in a nutshell. The same thing happens in Jenin, in Ramallah. I'll give you another example. There are more than 2 million refugees, Palestinian refugees, living in Jordan. Now, they're not only living in Jordan, but they have Jordanian citizenship. Again, if we used international standards, when someone acquires new citizenship, I mean, when a refugee all over the world, when a Bengali 
uh, or a Pakistani refugee arrives to Sweden or to the UK and he is given a new citizenship, at that moment, his refugee status ceases to exist. He's not a refugee anymore because he has a new citizenship. Not in the case of the Palestinians. Again, the only group on earth who has a separate definition and whose refugee status does not cease immediately upon acquiring a new citizenship is the Palestinians. Now, again, the question is why? Why doesn't the refugee status of the Palestinians in Jordan, again, more than 2 million, these are not individual cases, this is a group decision by UNRWA to continue granting uh, refugee status to millions and millions of people for what purpose? Is it for humanitarian purposes? No, it is for political purposes, for the Palestinians to be able to continue their 100 year long war against Israel, to continue to dream about returning to Israel, and in fact, undoing the state of Israel. Now, this is a little bit about the background, uh, what I think or what, how I see uh, the next few days unfolding. I think that UNRWA, as, as it declared, uh, will have some kind of an investigation, an internal investigation. I assume that since the issue have become so public, uh, they will have to take it more seriously than in the past. I just want to remind you that cases of people working for UNRWA and at the same time uh, working for terrorist organization has begun in the 60s. In my book, together with Einat Wilf, uh, The War of Return, we show that already in the 60s, senators in the United States saw that people were at the same time receiving salaries from UNRWA and from the PLO. And that continued along the 70s, the 80s. So there's nothing new here. Okay, but since this case now have got more publicity than before, I assume that the investigation will have to be uh, more serious. But I can almost assure you what the outcome will be, because, again, we have the experience of the past. The Commissioner General of UNRWA will come have a, a press conference and say, yes, this is terrible. We have seen that those 12 or, you know, even 15 rotten apples indeed participated in the massacre of the 7th of October. But, you know, we are now fired them. We have stopped working with them. And for the sake of the 30,000 people, who, other people who work for UNRWA and for the sake of the Palestinian people, we have to continue UNRWA. So that would be the line of, of defense or, or the, the, the reasoning. Yes, there are a few bad apples. We will get rid of them. But please give us back the money and we can all go back to normal. I think this would be a terrible mistake by the international community, by Israel, and by everybody who ever wants to see peace between Israelis and Palestinians, because UNRWA is a detrimental factor in the conflict. It's a detrimental factor in the history of the conflict. It makes peace and reconciliation between Jews and Arabs in this area impossible. It makes the Palestinians continue believe that the international community is behind them in their dream of from the river to the sea. In fact, UNRWA is the embodiment of the, uh, of the chanting that we have now seen all around the West of from the river to the sea, because it sends the Palestinians exactly the opposite message than the one they should have received. Instead of telling the Palestinians that if they want to live next to Israel, the international community will help them, it sends the message that no matter 
what the Palestinians say, and no matter what do be, what they believe, and no matter what they say, the international community will continue spending billions of dollars and providing them with all kinds of services. Now, another issue I want to address, and this is specifically true to the Gaza Strip, is that the existence of UNRWA have made things much easier for Hamas. Imagine that UNRWA would not have been in place in Gaza. What does UNRWA do actually? It gives services such as education, such as health, right? That's exactly what a functioning government is usually doing. Now, all of this uh, headache was actually spared from Hamas. Hamas doesn't have to take care of education, to take care of health. They don't care about the population, about the civilian population. So they have 24 hours, seven days a week, time to plan how to kill Jews, how to infiltrate the state of Israel. So what happened actually in the Gaza Strip is that the existence of UNRWA have made life so much easier for the perpetrators and the planners of all terror attacks. Now we have seen that underneath Gaza, in the tunnels, there were really very good infrastructure. So it's not that the Palestinians are incapable of building their own economy or that they're so miserable, you know, or untalented. On the contrary, they have made, at least according to engineers and people who are, have some technical knowledge, they said that the infrastructure in Gaza, I mean, the tunnels of Gaza are on a very high level. So the question is not about how much money or how much aid the international community should give Gaza, but about the priorities of the people who live in Gaza. So I don't think that we should continue and thinking in terms of, oh, these poor people in Gaza, we must help them. The question is not how much help you give Gaza, but the question is what they do with the help or their priorities. Unfortunately, for the last 100 years, the only one, the number one priority was to never accept the existence of the Jewish state, to never accept the notion of Jews sovereign in this part of the world. And as we saw, all means, every dollar, every ounce of milk, of powder, of, of whatever you can imagine, of flour, was always given and sent to this purpose. So I think if I want to uh, conclude and open it to your questions, I think that the decision should be permanent, that UNRWA should be dismantled. It's number one top priority for the international community and Israel, and of course, moderate Arab countries, is to change the priorities of the population and the leadership of Gaza before anything else is done. We see like a domino effect. Uh, there are already 10 countries, and some of them are, you know, like Iceland and Sweden, where usually there are countries who tend to be very supportive of UNRWA. And if Sweden has decided to, to suspend, and, and this is an important uh, distinction, it's not a, it's not a cessation of, of, of funding, it's just a suspension. This is a, an important distinction. I believe that we will see already now more than 50 or 60% of the funding has been suspended. So it's a significant portion. I can't be too optimistic, but I think that now for the first time ever, because there has been such a huge impact and the level of atrocities 
of October 7th was such, you cannot uh, hide it and you cannot uh, ignore them. So I think that for the first time, there's a bigger hope or a possibility that indeed uh, UNRWA will be dismantled. A lot of people already know the inefficiency of the UNRWA the, for, the, for so many years. But it's like kind of, a, isn't it like, a, uh, isn't it it's like a si- similar situation where we're having very difficulties of uh, do, thinking about the day after the war because there is really no partner uh, for the for the two state or whatever that the the, the international community is pushing for. In the in the same case, uh, if you actually dismantle the UNRWA, who's who can actually support this uh, Gaza people? Because right now the Gaza Gaza people are heavily reliant. All the the system itself right now is relying heavily on the UNRWA's uh, its funding. So isn't it? It's a it's a we do want to like. There's a lot of wish to kind of dismantle the UNRWA, but is it practically and realistically possible? So let me let me give you two answers. First of all, what we now see in Gaza, the huge infrastructure, all the ammunition and the tunnels, was built while UNRWA was there. So the fact that UNRWA is present in the Gaza Strip is not a guarantee that Hamas is not taking some of it or all of it to their own purposes. The presence of UNRWA did not help in preventing October 7th. That's one. The second thing is that I think it's high time that the international community start treating the Palestinians as grown-ups. We have seen that they are capable. They are capable. They, everybody who saw the infrastructure in Gaza understood that these people can build factories, can build schools, can build hospitals. So why do you still think that they need international help? They had everything they needed, but instead of building hospitals, they built tunnels. The notion that the Palestinians still need so much international aid, I think that should be put in question. I don't think that they need so much aid. And I'll tell you something more. Perhaps that if the international community stopped aiding through UNRWA, Hamas or anybody else, whatever the government, interim, whatever government will be, will actually have to start working for the population. What UNRWA is actually doing is relieving Hamas of all the normal duties that the government has towards the population. So, of course, somebody else is working for the hospitals, for the, you know, everything else. So Hamas can continue and, and uh, just acquire ammunition. That's one thing. If the international community, and by that I mean uh, the United States, the European Union, Japan, whatever, every country which wants to send or to give money to the Palestinians, they can do it in a variety of ways without using a refugee agency. The main problem with UNRWA is that it maintains the refugee problem. It perpetuates the refugee problem. I'll give you an example. Let's say that tomorrow there's an earthquake in Haiti or a tsunami in Asia, somewhere, okay, in India or somewhere. And someone wants to aid or send immediate aid. They simply send aid, ad hoc aid, and that's it. They don't stay for 75 years. They don't designate the people they're refugees. So what I'm trying to say is that there's no reason 
to designate these people refugees, recognize them against all international standards, refugees, and give them like the international stamp that they are indeed refugees and one day they're going to return to the state of Israel. You have to understand that UNRWA is a part and parcel of the Palestinian narrative. Perhaps for viewers from outside the region, it seems like a, a humanitarian agency which is somehow giving aid. But for the Palestinians, it's the international guarantee that they were the ones who were kicked out in 1948 and that the one day they are going to return to their houses. So you have to understand that there's a very strong political dimension. If you want to continue sending aid, okay, that's every country's own decision, but not through a political agency. It must be neutral in the sense that there's no connection whatsoever, not to refugees, not to anything which is having to do with the Palestinian narrative. And that is something that you have to do. But I'm seriously questioning the, the, the proposition that they need so much help, given the fact that we have seen what they did with it. I, I want to ask you about the near future, because there are Israeli officials who say that uh, UNRWA is now maybe the biggest uh, partner of Israel for the humanitarian aid that's going into Gaza. So by dismantling them or weakening them, aren't we what we call shooting ourselves in the leg and dragging ourselves to, to do more, to take more responsibility for the population in Gaza? And on, um, on another issue, more practical, do you have any idea what was the information that was sent to UNRWA and to United States and how long did it take them to get to this decision? Because both statements came kind of simultaneously on Friday afternoon. Okay, so for your first question, yes, that's indeed the Israeli perspective, and it's a wrong perspective, and we have seen that it did not help us. What you just said was the, the uh, position of the Israeli defense establishment, that UNRWA is the least worst alternative. But, as I said, it did not prevent October 7th, and as we have seen, Palestinians themselves are very capable. There is no need whatsoever for Israel to work with UNRWA. That's a myth. People are used to work with UNRWA just as they are used to having the sun rising in the east. That's just something which we are accustomed to, and we have to stop cooperating with UNRWA. I don't think that we should be responsible, Israel should be responsible for how the Palestinians provide the aid inside the Gaza Strip. You give whatever you want to give to the Rafah uh, border crossing. That's it. You're not responsible from that moment on who is taking the trucks in. That's what, that's what the IDF says, right? The IDF says, we want UNRWA trucks to take the food or whatever from a Rafah border, right? And I'm saying that we are not responsible. Okay, we're giving the aid, we're uh, providing or allowing the aid to enter the Gaza Strip. But from that moment on, we have no responsibility whatsoever of how it is distributed in the Gaza Strip. In any case, Hamas is the one who's doing it. We have seen people with rifles standing on the trucks of UNRWA, supposedly UNRWA. So that's a charade. We're just fooling ourselves. Right now, we are shooting our own leg, uh, as, as exactly as you said. Now, according to your, second, uh, to, to your second question, I don't know too much inside information, but since we know that those 12 people are apparently arrested 
not yesterday, right? So this is something which is in the process. I think that we can assume that there has been a process of deliberation of perhaps when and if to declassify this information. And the way was to deliver the information to UNRWA so that not Israel will pronounce it, but giving the information to UNRWA. And then UNRWA, I think, had no choice because if UNRWA uh, would not have said something, then Israel would have said something. So that was a preventive case by UNRWA to, to try to stop somehow the fallout and, uh, you know, to contain uh, the fiasco that uh, was bound to happen if the IDF uh, pronounced it itself. Israel would like to, to check everything that go inside the Gaza, especially nowadays. So if you put everything at Rafa or there is um, a sea blockade, so you do narrow the amount of uh, humanitarian aid that can go inside. And we have heard all the criticism, including in The Hague, only on Friday. So it's kind of a loose-loose situation. If Israel wants to monitor what's entering the Gaza Strip, you do it outside of the Gaza Strip, right? You do it either on the Israeli side of Kerem Shalom or on the Egyptian side with some Israeli cooperation of Rafah uh, border crossing. That's it. That you should continue doing. But from the moment that the delivery goes to the, to the uh, other side, to the Palestinian side, we don't care if UNRWA distributes it or somebody else. Because Sorry? eventually Hamas will enter the vacuum. Hamas but they're doing it anyway. That's exactly what they're doing. You see that there's a diffusion. You can't really distinguish between people who are Hamas and people who are UNRWA. We have seen that. Okay, It's the same group of people. Some people are teachers and members of Hamas. And sometimes people who are Hamas with rifles simply take over the trucks. So that's just something that we tell ourselves that there is Hamas. And there's UNRWA. No, it's not true. Hamas is controlling the entire area, or at least those areas which they are still in control. Certainly, Rafiach or Rafah and Khan Yunus. That's a delusion to believe that somebody can work inside the Gaza Strip, not under the command and control of Hamas. They're certainly deciding who's going to get more food, more flour, more water, or whatever goes in. So what I'm saying is, keep on the monitoring outside the Strip, so no ammunition goes in and nothing which can harm Israel. But from the moment that, and, and you, you don't need UNRWA for that, it's we do it alone. And from the moment that everything goes in the Strip, why do we care how they distribute it? If it's really not weapon, let's say it's bread and milk and flour, okay, let's just say, or clothing. Why do we care if UNRWA distributes it or Hamas distributes it? It's the same anyway. By letting this charade continue, the costs that we are... Let me, let me tell you another thing. Uh, we hear, for example, UN personnel, the, the IDF killed UN personnel, or the IDF is attacking United Nations facilities. Now, when you hear this, and you're in Belgium or in Sweden, you say to yourself, okay, my, my God, these Israelis are lunatic, right? They're killing the United Nations. The United Nations is neutral. They don't understand the reality on the ground in Gaza. In Gaza, all United Nations personnel are Palestinian. Inside UNRWA, schools and hospitals, you have rockets, you have tunnels, you have army infrastructure, okay? So we just have to stop with this charade. There's no reason for UNRWA to operate. 
Okay, there are no refugees in Gaza. They don't need a refugees agency. You understand? It's it's like a bubble that was created like 75 years ago, and now we 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 say that uh, we have to distribute. I don't know if the Palestinians want to distribute. By the way, if the Americans want to distribute, if the Red Cross wants to distribute, someone go on distribute it. Why do we need UNRWA? Why do we need a refugee agency which should have existed? I mean, ceases to exist decades ago. We don't need them. Don't you fear we might find ourselves distributing it eventually because there will be we're a chaos? And we're not in the street. We're not in. Now we are, but no, but now we are. No, not in terms. No, when you talk, no. we're not in Rafah. We're not in Rafah. No, we're, we're not, not in Rafah. We're not distributing. Listen, trucks are arriving at Rafah. That's it. That's our. Ob- I don't think it's an obligation, but that is something voluntary uh, that we decided to do together with the pressure of the international community. Okay, whatever. Okay, you you bring something to the doorstep of someone. That's it. From that moment on, he decides how much his older brother will get, how much his younger brother will get. That's it. I'm not responsible for that. That is not a reason. And you know what? Let me continue. Even for the day after, okay? You're now talking about some kind of a humanitarian ad hoc need for the real very f- near future. I hear that people say that we'll need UNRWA even in the day after. Why is that? For the reconstruction. Again, you cannot reconstruct anything which an agency which is flawed from the beginning. This is how we got to October 7th. There is a connection between the Palestinian worldview and how we got here and the entire structure of UNRWA, Nakba refugees. That's not in a vacuum. What the United Nations Secretary General said was exactly right. It's an entire worldview, entire ecosystem which portrays the Palestinians as victims, as eternal victims of the Jews. And UNRWA is just that. So with UNRWA, we arrived to October 7th. Now we want to reconstruct the Gaza Strip again with UNRWA? We're going to get another October 7th. You have been listening to Dr. Adi Schwartz, a specialist in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, who spoke at a media briefing conducted by Media Central in Israel about allegations of UNRWA employees participating in the October 7 massacre and how many countries have decided to freeze the organization's funds. You can listen to this program or any previous programs by going to the JE website, that's j-e.com.au, and looking for the Israel Connection there under Podcasts on the main menu. Please consider supporting what we do at JE by becoming a member. Just go to the JE website to join. It costs only $50 per annum and will help us keep broadcasting for your benefit 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.